Okay, so if you'll remember, the fundamental kind of problem that I started with was I was going to take two sessions to talk about the Old Testament law and the New Testament law and how they're related to each other. And uh, it's been a, a, a kind of a personal point of inquiry and interest of mine for many, many years. Uh, I started to, I first started reading the Old, New Testament and started understanding that uh, Paul, for example, when St. Paul would speak about the Old Testament, he'd always speak about it by way of almost a kind of a contrast with the New. The Old Testament being a very external reality and not spiritual. The Old Testament being uh, the mere commandment but not the power to actually obey the commandments. That's kind of the impression I would get from St. Paul when I'd read him. And that's a sort of a traditional Christian understanding. Really, Protestants and Catholics, if you phrase it like that, we would agree pretty much that you know we'd be on the same page with each other. Uh, so the, the law is this, is this kind of external reality that really doesn't have the power to um, enable its adherence to obey it. Whereas the new uh, covenant is uh, it has to do with faith, and it has to do with uh, it's a spiritual reality, it has to do with the internal reality of our hearts, and so Paul would contrast one against the other, and then I would read the Old Testament um, after many many years and start to kind of discern well you know in the Old Testament there seems to be a power of sanctification that the Old Testament law gives, and studying Judaism. When the Jews, when they pray their prayers, they always say, "Blessed are you, Lord God of the universe, who have given, who have sanctified us by your commandments, who have sanctified us by your commandments." That's a phrase that's almost in every Jewish prayer. And I say to myself, you know, that's pretty biblical, actually. The Old Testament law, really, when you read the Old Testament, it speaks like that. So the Old Testament sanctifies, but I thought it was the New Testament that sanctifies. So how do you? It's a conundrum or a problem that's been in my mind for many, many years, and. After a while, I started to realize the kind of a, uh, a, a, an interesting relationship between the two testaments that can explain and reconcile uh, the two and, and that and solve that um, problem. So, the last class we went over how the Old Testament law sanctifies, and we we showed how on the day of the church. Remember, this is this great moment, momentous occasion when uh, the children of Israel are gathered before Mount Sinai and, and God comes down on the top of Mount Sinai. It's very dramatic with all this fire and then God's voice speaks. And uh, does you, do you, anybody remember what is it that the voice of God, what, we, what do we hear the voice of God saying when he speaks on the day of the assembly for Mount Sinai? What does God say? What are the words? Yeah, the Ten Commandments. So God gives the Ten Commandments uh, and literally, the ten words, actually, when you read the Bible, literally, it's, it says the ten words, but lots of times the translations are ten commandments. So God gives the ten words, or what we refer to as the Decalogue. Has anybody ever heard the phrase, the Decalogue? Okay, so the Decalogue refers to the ten commandments, and if you look at the word Decalogue, it's, got, it's a Greek word. Deca means ten, and then log, logos, is word. So actually, the word Decalogue means ten words, Okay. And then that's, that's really accurate to the, uh, the literal Hebrew of the Old Testament, the ten words. So God speaks the ten words. And then I showed how um, it was a very circuitous route, but I showed how actually that event is a sanctifying event for the children of Israel and how it even deifies them. I use the phrase deification. Um, and how it makes them like 
uh, little gods. And that's, in fact, what sanctifying grace does. It Because it makes us God-like, you can say it makes us gods. You just got to understand how that how that phrase is. And that goes back to Psalm 82, where, where the psalmist says, I said you are gods, all of you, sons of the Most High. And then there's this Jewish interpretation that the sin of the golden calf takes place. Nonetheless, you shall die like men and fall like any of the princes. Nonetheless, you shall die like, and then literally in the Hebrew it says, Adam. Nonetheless, you shall die like Adam. And I was tying it all into uh, the Garden of Eden and how Mount Sinai was a kind of a return to Eden, to that grace and that glory that Adam had before that original sin. And how, in fact, in a certain sense, the story of the Garden of Eden is like a commentary on Israel receiving the law from Mount Sinai. So just like Adam received the one commandment, thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden of knowledge of good and evil, just like Adam received that one commandment, and it was the obedience of that one commandment that was going to keep him within God's grace, so also God speaks his word to Israel, sanctifies them, brings them into a state of grace, and then their keeping of that commandments is going to maintain them in the state of grace. But what do they do to fall out of grace? What's the, the primal sin? The idol. Is the idol. They make this idol, okay? So then the golden calf comes about. And uh, it's just like Adam. Adam disobeys that one commandment and he falls from grace. And so the children of Israel, they make the idol and they fall from grace. And, uh, and then we had that passage from Sirach that showed how the... Um, Garden of Eden and, and Sinai were, were related to each other. Okay, so we've got this idea that the Old Testament law sanctifies. Okay, but I thought the New Testament law sanctifies, so that's what we're going to get into today. All right, So that's the kind of the mystery we're exploring. So last one was the law of life. The law of life, which is a phrase from Sirach 17. And it, he says that he, God gave Moses the law of life. Uh, but this one is what? The giver of the law of life the giver of the law of life. And I hope to show that it's actually Jesus Christ who is prefigured in the giving of the law in Mount Sinai on the day of the church, on the day of the assembly. So that's where I'm going eventually. And so uh, this is a beautiful painting. For, I don't recall the artist, but this is from the 19th century. There's a lot of really beautiful works from the 19th century, the romantic time period. I really like a lot of that stuff. And uh, you have... what's. Uh, what what's scene? Can anybody imagine? What do you think scene of the gospel is this with Jesus? Sermon on the, mount. the sermon on the mount. on the mount. So there's a parallel between Mount Sinai and and the mount upon which Jesus gives the sermon. Okay, and he starts. So we heard out of the mouth of God on Sinai the ten words. Well, Jesus is going to give eight words on the Sermon on the Mount. He begins with the eight Beatitudes, okay? And the Beatitudes are the perfect works uh, that people do who have the interior virtues and graces of God and and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's what the Beatitudes are. So the Beatitudes are, in contrast to the Old Testament law, now I'm coming from kind of a Pauline perspective, in contrast to the Old Testament law, the Beatitudes are very much talking about the internal reality. Okay, so blessed are the pure of heart. Okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. So it's a very internal spiritual reality. Whereas at Sinai, it was these words coming from a distance, and in fact, the children of Israel were so afraid of it all, they're like, okay, 
you know, Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. All right, so here's, here's Jesus talking, giving the law, the, the spiritual law, the inner law, the law of life uh, in the New Testament sense. And uh, he says, You have heard that it was said to the men of old, and this is, this, this is the pattern on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, You have heard that it was said to the men of old, Thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, anyone who says to his brother, You're a fool, will be subject to the judgment of hell. Okay, so it's like, wow, okay, so Jesus' moral standards are really, really high. They're really spiritual. They're very much internal. Okay, and uh, he's speaking on his own authority, which is really interesting. It's almost as if he himself is God. I mean, he's saying, well, you've heard that it was said on Mount Sinai, but I'm saying to you, as if he's got the authority to to give his own laws. Okay, it's kind of a, a big deal. I mean, if he wasn't God, he would be pretty presumptuous by, by saying that. Okay, so let's talk about the old law as external and impotent. All right, not 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 able or not powerful. Uh, in Romans chapter eight, now probably some of you read those readings that I had asked you to read. Romans chapter eight is an incredible, uh, wonderful chapter, um, and uh, it begins uh, about the law, of the spirit of life. Um, actually, let's why don't we turn to Romans eight and read the first few verses of that. So if you want to learn about the Old Testament law and the New Testament uh, law and the contrast and the relationship between the two, you read Romans and Galatians. Those are the two major um, teachings of Paul that where he addresses these, uh, the relationship between the two. So why doesn't someone read um, Romans 8, verses 1 through 8? Um, Alice, do you want to read? We're in Romans uh, chapter 8. Right here. Right. Yeah, why don't you go eight verses. I hence now there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has freed you from the law of sin and death. For what the law weakened by the flesh was powerless to do, this God has done, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for the sake of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so the righteous degree of the law might be fulfilled in us, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live accordingly, or according to the flesh, are concerned with the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit with the things of the Spirit. The concern of flesh is death, but the concern of the Spirit is life and peace. For the concern of the flesh is hostility towards God, It does not submit to the law of God, nor can it. And those who are in the flesh cannot please him. That's good. Very good. Okay, Uh, so that's a real uh, uh, important passage there. And we hear in verse 2 about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is teaching us here is that it's through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ uh, that we have, uh, God has established a, a conduit, if you will, of power, of grace, of the Holy Spirit. And so, in the New Testament era, we're given the Holy Spirit uh, for the sake of or because of Jesus' sacrifice. We're able to participate in the Holy Spirit in a special way. And it's the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us in our inner being. Uh, 
And we have within us the law of the Spirit of life. This is that eternal life um, that we hear about so much all throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John. Eternal life. The law of the Spirit of life. And uh, it talks about how the Old Testament law was weak. Why was it weak? It's going to be in verse 3. Yeah, because of the flesh. Okay, so it was weak on account of, the, of human weakness. All right. Um, so when uh, the word flesh is used, it's used in a lot of different meanings. Uh, there's kind of a there's a spectrum of uh, negative to positive meanings with the word flesh, and sometimes it's used neutrally, sometimes it's used positively, meaning human nature. So when it says uh, the word became flesh, it means human nature in a positive sense. But lots of times Paul uses the word flesh in a negative sense. It means human nature, but as corrupted by sin. Human nature, but not as God intended it to be from the beginning, but as it was after the fall. Okay, And even those for, for us who are baptized, there's still consequences of original sin. But uh, if we're in a state of grace, there is a fundamental uh, difference. And there's a certain sense in which we can say we're not in the flesh anymore. If we have... Uh, if we're in a state of grace and we have the Spirit of God abiding in us, we're not in the flesh, in a certain sense. There's still sinful inclinations within us, and that's what we call concupiscence in our theological tradition and in the Bible. Uh, But um, there's a fundamental change that's taken place because of the gift of grace that's been given to us, and we have the power and the ability to obey the law of God. And that's a really incredible thing. So he says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. So if you're in a state of grace and you have the power of God in your in your soul through the Holy Spirit, you don't have to um, be a slave to your sinful inclinations. You don't have to. Okay, You have the freedom to obey the law of God. So then the law in this case being the moral law of God. Okay? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that, and this is verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements, or the just requirements, or I think, Alice, your translation was decree, right? Mm-hmm. For the just decree, uh, that the just decree of the law might be fulfilled in us, so that we actually might obey the Ten Commandments. Okay? Because... The Ten Commandments were given, and they were broken immediately. And so there's a problem. There's this perennial problem. How can we get obedience? Well, Christ came, and he fulfilled the law perfectly, in perfect righteousness, and it's through his sacrifice, and through his power, and through our incorporation in him that allows us to be able to actually obey the law. Okay, the moral law. Um, So, the old law is a kind of external reality, and it's not able to... Um, uh, empower us to obey the moral law because it's a merely external reality and it doesn't it, it, the law in, in it's certain kind of a classics and the classic meaning of the word and the Pauline meaning of the word the Old Testament law is does not have the power it doesn't change our hearts okay like the New Testament does so now am I contradicting myself didn't you say the old law was the law of life well, I did actually. So, but that's the whole problem, right? That's why I'm doing two classes on this issue, right? So we have the again going back to our verses we've already heard from Romans for the law of the spirit of life. So it's the New Testament law that's the law of life. 
but the Old Testament law is the law of life too. That's the problem. Okay, so that's how I'm what I'm trying to you know explore today. So the Old Testament law again, going from the Pauline perspective, uh, we go to two Corinthians chapter uh, three and four. Okay, and Saint Paul says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So the letter is an external reality. The Spirit is an internal reality, and and the uh, the Spirit gives life. So uh, he goes on, Paul goes on, but if the dispensation of death engraved on stones, right? This is the two tablets of Moses, came with glory. How did the how did the Old Testament dispensation come with glory? What happened to Moses when he received the two tablets? His face was you know, shining, was luminous. Okay. So there's Moses with his face shining. We explored that last week. What were the in our um, religious art tradition? What what uh, is the symbol of the light coming off of Moses' face? The horns. Okay. So you got Moses with the horns coming off his head. All right, and that's because in the Hebrew, literally, it says he, his face was horned, but it means it means like 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 uh, beams of light were coming out of his head. Okay. So the letter kills, spirit gives life. But if the dispensation of death, he's referring to the Old Testament, engraved on stones, came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look steadfastly upon the face of Moses, how shall not rather the dispensation or the ministration of the Spirit be with glory? So he's saying if the Old Testament law came with glory, how much more so is the New Testament law going to come with glory? And then so we've got now a kind of a new... Remember I was talking about how Moses, in a certain sense, was a, a sort of a rebirth of Adam. Because Adam, before he fell, had this kind of a glory to him. He, had, he was in grace. So there's grace being the seed of glory. You can say that Adam ha, had been given the gift of glory, and then he lost it uh, because of, the, because of the, that original sin. And then here comes Moses now, who... Is a, he basically kind of like returns to Eden through the giving of the law. The law is like a, the is like a paradise, is like a return to paradise. And there's Moses now with this luminous face. It's like he's re, he's Adam reborn. He's Adam come back to life. That original state, Adamic state, that, that before the fall. And uh, but wait a second though. In the New Testament, Jesus is the new Adam, not Moses. Okay, and that's what Paul's actually teaching us in 2 Corinthians. And so we have this beautiful passage about our Lord. It says, For it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so now it's Jesus' face that's radiating the glory of God. And so I have this conundrum up at the top. If you see the heading, that says, is Jesus the real at, real new Adam, or is he the ultimate new Adam? Okay, now there's, there's, there's meaning in that phrase. If we said that Jesus is the real new Adam, we would be, the implication would be that Moses is not a new Adam. Okay? He's a false new Adam. But ultimately, that, I, that's not the direction I want to go in. I want to say that, that Jesus is, is the ultimate new Adam, because Moses is still a new Adam in some kind of sense but really just as like one more step towards that ultimate fulfillment uh, of, uh, of you know, the new Adam, which would be our Lord Jesus. So again, uh, the, the, the 
problem is contradiction or fulfillment. And so whenever I have a theological problem, I go to St. Thomas Aquinas, okay? Because he's really smart. <laughs> and he pretty much knows it all. And I could spend the rest of my life studying him and just be scratching the surface. So in his great work called the Summa, in the, the, they call it the Prima Secunda, which means the first part of the second part of his, this great big work, it's like if you put it into a book, it's written like this big. And in the beginning it says... This is an introduction for beginning for beginning students of theology. <laughs> really? Wow. Okay. Thank you, Thomas. So, uh, question 106, Article 1. So Thomas poses the question. He says, is the new law a written law? Okay, is it, is it written? And he answers that the new law is instilled in our hearts. It's internal. Okay? And to prove this, he cites Jeremiah. 31, 31 to 34. So why don't we turn to the prophet Jeremiah and read that. That's going to be a very important uh, passage in the Old Testament we'll look at again later on in, in uh, future studies. So if, uh, you know, you got Isaiah and then Jeremiah. And Isaiah comes after Sirach. And if you're smart like Linda, you got these tabs on the side of your Bible so you can just cheat. Okay, who wants to... As you want to read? No? Okay. John, you want to read? Okay. We're going to do... Yeah, why don't we do 31... Um, yeah, thirty-one, thirty-one to thirty-four. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inner, inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, but they shall know, all know me. From the least of them unto the, from, from the least unto them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Okay. Now that is quite an amazing prophecy. I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, it, it sums up the entire Bible. Old Testament and New Testament sums it up right there. And this is written um, probably around the year 5, I would say 570. So 570 years before Jesus. I mean... It almost puts goosebumps on you, you know, it really is an amazing thing. So here he is saying, um, here's a prophecy. He says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, and it's not like the covenant, not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Remember, the primary way they broke it was with the, with the golden calf, okay? Even though I was their husband. Now that's an interesting thing too. So we can add a whole other dimension to this. So on the day of the church on Mount Sinai, God came down, and we can say that he took Israel as his bride. All right? And it's, it's just like Jesus and the church 
Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. So that has that has kind of premonitions in the Old Testament. So God, when he came down on Mount Sinai and he spoke to the to them the ten words, it was like he took Israel as his bride. But they were faithless to him and they broke the marriage covenant, so to speak. Okay? And uh, he says, so that's what happened with the old covenant, but with the new it's going to be different. He says, this is the covenant I'll make with them. I'll put my law where? With, within them. Within them. Okay? Um, and I'll write it on their hearts. And they and I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now that is amazing. Okay? What we're going to see, what we're going to get into is that Thomas is going to teach, and I think he's totally accurate, he's in alignment with all the old, uh, with, the, with the church fathers and with the New Testament, I believe, that there is an external and an internal dimension to the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is really known in terms of its internal dimension. Okay, um, But it does have an external dimension to it, and so there are external commandments and external teachings and dogma that come with the new covenant. Uh, but that's, in a certain sense, that's not the new covenant properly speaking. The new covenant properly speaking is an internal grace. It's the internal power that God gives us through the sacraments to obey Him and to know Him and to be a fit dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And so even what I'm doing right now to all of you is a very external activity. I'm teaching and speaking out loud, and these are words that are coming out of my mouth and ringing on your ears. And it's a very external activity. I'm saying, know the Lord to you. But there's a certain dimension of the New Testament that doesn't depend on the preacher, doesn't depend on the teacher, and it's totally internal and spiritual. And, and, and it's something that you can say, they shall no longer say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So there's a certain reality that all of us have if we're in a state of grace that you don't need, I mean, in a certain sense, okay, you gotta, you gotta measure it out. In a certain sense, you don't need a teacher. Okay, there's an internal dimension that comes through the Holy Spirit. That's, that doesn't come, like I can't, as a teacher, I can't give that to you. It comes by God's grace through the sacraments. So it's a, it's a really amazing thing. And that's the New Testament in its most essential reality, is that internal dimension. So, Thomas cites Jeremiah, and then he cites uh, the Epistle to the Hebrews, which, it, which talks about that passage from Jeremiah. And then he goes on. So we're going to quote a little bit from Thomas here, kind of a lengthy a bit here. So this is what Thomas says. Uh, I answer that, and he quotes Aristotle here. Okay, uh, Each thing appears to be that which preponderates in it. Now that's a big word, preponderate. Okay, uh, Each thing appears to be that which preponderates in it, as the philosopher says. Now... That which is preponderant in the law of the New Testament, meaning what he's meaning, what he means by that fancy word is he's saying that which is the predominant element in. Okay, so that which is preponderant in the law of the New Testament and whereon all its efficacy is based is the grace of the Holy Ghost. That's the essence of the new law: is the grace of the Holy Spirit, which is given through faith in Christ. Consequently, the new law is chiefly the grace itself of the Holy Ghost. It's not an external reality. It's a totally internal and spiritual reality, um, uh, which is given to those who believe in Christ. This is manifestly stated by the Apostle who says, uh, Where is thy boasting? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For he calls the grace itself of faith a law. 
And then we saw from Romans 8, verse 2, Paul talking about the law of the Spirit of life. So that's the new law. It's, it's the Holy Spirit and the, the grace of God that's in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So Thomas continues, Nevertheless, the new law contains certain things that dispose us to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit. And pertaining to the use of that grace, such things are of secondary importance, so to speak, in the new law. And the faithful need to be instructed concerning them both by word and writing, both as to what they should believe and as to what they should do. Consequently, we must say that the new law is in the first place a law that is inscribed on our hearts, but that secondarily, it is a written law. Right? Because you have the New Testament itself. It's written down, and here I am, exegeting it and teaching it and speaking it to you, and I'm saying this is the moral law, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. Okay? That's all legitimate. It's part of the... It's part of legitimate New Testament preaching. It's what the apostles preached. All right, But that's a secondary element to the New Testament, to the New Covenant. The real essence of the New Covenant is God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And that's not something I can give to you by teaching or whatever. My teaching can dispose you to receive God's grace, but only, only God himself through the sacraments or directly can give you grace. Uh, and he does it through Jesus Christ and through the cross of Christ. All grace is given on account of the cross. Even the people in the Old Testament received grace because of Jesus Christ, even before he was crucified. It was kind of a pre-foreseen merits, essentially. So when all the Old Testament saints received grace, God gave it to them on account of Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice was yet to take place, but you know he, he foresaw Christ's meritorious sacrifice. And he gave grace to all the Old Testament saints because of Jesus. Okay, let's go here. Uh, This is the second article after Thomas Steele here. So, as stated above, there's a twofold element in the law of the gospel, twofold elements. There is the chief element, namely the grace of the Holy Ghost bestowed inwardly, and to this the new law justifies. The other element of the evangelical law is secondary, namely the teachings of faith and those commandments which direct human affections and human actions. As to this, the new law does not justify. Okay? So like my teaching does not justify you. My telling you that you can't do this or you can do this or this is permissible, that does not justify you. It can dispose you to be in the right place so that God can justify you, but it's God who does that. And so if you look at the high, highlighted red part, wherefore the letter, even of the gospel, would kill unless there were the inward presence of the healing of grace. That's pretty amazing. So there is a, a dimension even to the New Testament where you, you know, if you hammer someone on the head with the, you know, there's a kind of an external reality that you can hammer people on the head. It's not going to help them. You're killing them, actually. All right? Um, and confessors know this. A good confessor, he can, he can tell when someone's conscience is not ready to move into a certain level of obedience. And so he, and he can tell if the person's in good faith, and if they're a good confessor, and he omits to even instruct them about certain things. Because he knows what he's working, there's a grace in this person's life, and he's massaging it, so to speak, and he's letting it grow, and waiting for the person to get to the position where they can actually uh, take on that that further uh, knowledge of God's will in their life. So, um, you know, point being is that just telling people straight off, this is right, this is wrong, sometimes it can function just like the Mosaic Law, all right? Oftentimes people, they come to church, especially when this guy preaches, 
and they get they get kind of scared because it's like all these things like don't do this, don't do that, and they're like it's like the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And you know, like, whoa my gosh, this is scary. Moses, you speak to us, but let not God speak to us lest we die. There can be an element like that even with the New Testament, you know? So uh, but what we do is we pray. We ask for God's grace first and foremost to give us courage, to give us strength, to illumine our minds so that we have an understanding of what we need to do and, and uh, God's love for us and our relationship with Him and how He has forgiven us in Jesus Christ and how Jesus is our strength. Okay, so uh, the twofold elements in both the Old and the New Law. Number one, uh, there is, so there's, this two, there's these two dimensions to both of the laws, the Old Testament Law and the New Testament Law. The first element is an internal element that is to be identified with sanctifying grace. That's a transformation that takes place in us by the Word of God and by the sacraments. Now there's a second element, an external element consisting of teachings and commandments. And that's kind of what I'm doing with you right now, just my voice. The bare sound of my voice is essentially that second element. Okay, The first element is the predominant element in the new law while the second element is the predominant element in the old law. So the old law is primarily external, but it does have a little bit of the internal. The new law is primarily the internal, but it does have a little bit of the external as well. Okay. Uh, so I go on, the first is blah, 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 blah. Yeah, laws, okay. But the first can still be found in the old law, albeit in a hidden manner. So there is an interior sanctifying dimension to the old law as well. It's just not the major element of the old law. It's a minor note, and it's hidden, and it's secret, and you got to look for it. And that's kind of what we're doing, so I'm digging it out of the old law um, for us. That's what I've been doing, the last class in this one. So here's Thomas, and he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes a passage from Wisdom. And he says, how do we deal with this passage? It says, in the Old Testament, in every generation, she, meaning wisdom, passes into holy souls. That's sanctification. That's the grace of sanctification. Passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God. So now you have a relationship. That's that interior dimension of grace. Okay, so, but in every generation that takes place, not just for people who were born after Jesus and who believe in him, but in every generation, from the beginning of the world, wisdom entered into the souls of people and sanctified them. So that's what I was saying. Even in the Old Testament law, there's that secret, internal, sanctifying dimension. And uh, the Old Testament saints possessed that and had that. And they had it on account of Jesus' sacrifice, even though it hadn't taken place yet. So Thomas goes on, he says, No man ever had the grace of the Holy Ghost except through faith in Christ." either explicit or implicit. And by faith in Christ, man belongs to the New Testament. Consequently, whoever had the law of grace instilled into them belonged to the New Testament. So there's a way in which we can talk about the Old Testament saints as New Testament members, as members of the New Covenant, as Christians, so to speak. And they had faith in Christ, either explicitly or implicitly. So I, I have a, you know, I'm... I'm kind of a maximalist on many questions, so I would say, if you were to ask me, I would say that Moses, he encountered Jesus, and he knew prophetically that the incarnation was going to take place, and he understood the sacrifice that was going to take place, so he had a prophetic understanding of all of that. Okay, The Old Testament prophets, Abraham, I believe Abraham did as well. 
I believe that uh, Abraham understood that one of his descendants was going to come by and be that sacrifice like Isaac that he offered up uh, on Mount Moriah. And that that person who was going to come, that Messiah who was going to come, that chosen seed who was going to come was going to be like Isaac. And it was going to be on account of that sacrifice that he was going to... Um, that the world would be saved and that grace would be given to mankind. So that would be, in a certain sense, explicit faith. So people like Abraham and Moses had explicit faith in Jesus Christ. Um, again, I'm a maximalist. You find many biblical scholars who think I'm doing, you know, that, that I'm taking too much liberty with the text, but I, I think it's true. That's that's my stance, and I'm sticking to it. So, but it says explicit or implicit. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think what he means essentially is something like this. I, I don't know if I got the exact right meaning, but in as much as the Old Testament saints would come to the temple, okay, the temple is a foreshadowing of Jesus, even though they didn't fully understand it, they were exercising faith in Jesus when they went to the temple. When they offered sacrifices, like the, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they had the scapegoat. The scapegoat is a, is a type and a prophetic symbol of Jesus Christ. So, those who participated in that, they were having implicit faith in Jesus Christ. And so almost anything that the Old Testament people of God did, there was an, at least an implicit uh, faith in Jesus Christ because all the law pointed forward to Jesus. So now, um, if we had time, we'd read this, but I think we probably we shouldn't. There's a great story in 1 Kings about Elijah. Okay? And Elijah is battling the children of Israel, and just like on Mount Sinai, uh, Moses had to deal with what kind of sin on Mount Sinai? What kind of sin was Moses having to... Idolatry. idolatry. So also in Elijah's day, Israel had fallen into great idolatry. They were worshipping the Baals, all the different Canaanite gods, and Elijah was raised up by God to go to them and speak and say, you know, turn them back. Repent, you sinners, or you're all idolaters. Worship the Lord alone. So he was reminding them of the first commandment, the same commandment they broke on Sinai. And so Elijah is very much moving in the spirit of Moses, and he's always referring to Moses and the law of Moses. And he's uh, and so uh, Moses has the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Does anybody remember this story in the Old Testament? Well, how does that conflict play out, uh, John? With the with the fire, with the fire coming down from heaven, right? So and they soaked all the water and all the water and all that, right? So you have this contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He says, okay, let's test and see whose God is the real God. We're going to set up this altar. We're going to slay the animals. We're going to put the animals on there. And then you uh, guys call upon your gods and see if that God answers by fire. Well, they call for hours. Nothing happens. And then Elijah says, O Lord God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's invoking all the patriarchs. And Moses, hear me. Let your people Israel know that you alone are the Lord God and that I am your prophets. And then he has all this water dumped in a trench dug around it and it's filled up with water. And then God sends all this fire from heaven down and consumes the, the sacrifice. And so then all the children of Israel fall on their face and say, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And, uh, and they take the prophets of Baal and they slay them. And, uh, but afterwards, Jezebel who is the queen of uh, the king Ahab in the northern kingdom. She is a great, she's a Canaanite, and she's a great, great uh, devotee 
um, of Baal. And so she's not happy that her priests got killed. And so she says, next time the rumor gets out, next time I see Elijah, I'm going to kill him. And so Elijah's like, oh, no, I, you know, all of the work that I've done, it doesn't, it's been for nothing. And so he's a little depressed, and he starts heading off to, does anybody know where Elijah goes for like a little retreat? He, go, he goes to Sinai. He travels all the way from Israel to Mount Sinai. So he starts traveling, and actually he gets tired, and he falls asleep, and an angel wakes him up and gives him food, and that food gives him strength to travel for 40 days. And that food is uh, like a type of the Eucharist, actually. That's uh, the mystical interpretations of the food. So Elijah gets to Sinai eventually, and there's this really dramatic moment. He goes into the cave, basically, where uh, God passed by Moses and showed Moses his glory, well, the back of his glory. And so basically Elijah goes to that same spot where Moses saw the Lord. And uh, the Lord says to him in a very still voice in his heart, he says, Elijah, why are you here? And it's very different. Notice that voice. It's different from the voice that the children of Israel heard on the day of the church, this booming voice from heaven. Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah's all mad and he's frustrated and he's almost pouting and he says, they've slain your prophets, they've torn down your altars, there's no righteous man left, I'm the only one left, I can't believe it, everything's going to crap and everything's going to hell in a handbasket and every, you know, you know. And so he's really mad and he's angry that no one's obeying the law and he's the only one and he's working, like a lot of preachers sometimes feel that way, you know, like you could preach to your blue in the face and nothing's happening. So anyway, this is Elijah and, um, and, and basically God says, okay, go out, go out of the cave. And so Elijah goes outside the cave and he goes basically to like the face of the, the mountain. He looks out and there's this massive, massive wind that comes, like a hurricane that comes through and it just starts rending the hilltops. It's a really powerful display. And then it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then this huge earthquake takes place and all the rocks are being broken up. And it says, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then the third one is a great fire. So this huge fire comes and lights everything up. And it says, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then Elijah, and it's totally silent. And then it says, but there was a wind or a still, small voice. A still, small voice. And Elijah knew that that was the Lord. And so then he goes out and he covers his face like Moses did at the burning bush. And then he speaks to God. And they have a conversation. So... This is teaching us, it's very interesting, it's an Old Testament commentary on Sinai, is that even at the Sinai event, on the day of the church, when God came down and all the fire, it was external. God was not really in the fire, in a certain sense. Or at least you can't identify the fire with God. The fire was merely external. It really wasn't God himself. Okay, And so that's what that story in Kings is teaching us. So, like Moses, Elijah has to deal with the idolatry of the people of Israel. When will they obey God and fulfill His law? That's the problem, right? They're all sinners. They're all idolaters. When are human beings going to fulfill the law? Adam broke it. Moses broke it. I'm sorry, not Moses, but the children of Israel on Sinai broke it. Now all the Israelites under Elijah's prophetic ministry are breaking the law. When is it going to be fulfilled? Okay, that's the, that's the desire of Elijah's heart. The wind, the earthquake, and fire that Elijah experienced are similar to what Moses experienced in the day of the church. But in the case of Elijah, it's clear that the Lord is not in them. 
In contrast to the voice from heaven in Moses' day, there is a still, small voice. So God is invisible. He's unseen. And he's a still, small voice, so to speak. Okay, uh, And that's a contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament comes in the great exterior exteriority of the fire and the wind and so forth and so on. And the New Testament comes like a wind. What does our Lord teach in John chapter 3? Does anybody know this passage? He says about being born again. He says, uh, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he's referring to the sacrament of baptism, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, and he says, uh, he says, just as the, the wind blows and you know not where it comes from or where it goes, so are those who are born of the Spirit. So there's that gentle, soft reality of sanctifying grace that's interior and spiritual. It's not seen. It's inside. So here we find an image of the difference between the old law and the new. The old law is symbolized by the wind, by the earthquake, by the fire. The new is symbolized by the still, small voice. The New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the new. So the Old Testament hides the New Testament. Just like you have this wind and this fire and this earthquake, and they are kind of like the outer shell of this still small voice that comes. Uh, Elijah must be patient. The law will be fulfilled, maybe not in Elijah's days, but in God's own time, through his unseen but powerful working in history. And so God works through history, little by little by little. Sometimes it doesn't appear like God's in control, and that was Elijah's concern. Sometimes it doesn't appear that God's in control, because bad things happen to good people, and there's lots of injustices, and you have all of these lofty promises about this great things that God is going to do in the people of God, and but then there's failure after failure after failure after failure, and then it culminates in the supreme failure of the cross, which doesn't appear to be a fulfillment of anything, but is in fact the fulfillment of all salvation history. And then Jesus rises from the dead, and it's through his death and resurrection that the power of the Holy Spirit, that internal still small voice, that reality is able to be given to us. So the law will be fulfilled in Jesus. So, you know, you've got Adam who can't obey the law, and you've got the children of Israel on Mount Sinai who can't obey the law, and you've got the children of Israel in Elijah's days who can't obey the law. Who can obey the law? Who, who obeys the law? Followers of Jesus. Well, we do, but through who? Christ. Through Christ. <laughs> Christ comes and he obeys the law. So in the temptation of the desert, we're going to be entering into Lent here pretty soon. Forty days of Jesus in the desert, that's our forty days in Lent. And just like Jesus was tempted three times, um, so there is this, what they call the triple concupiscence. You, people who were coming to my morning mass hear me use this phrase. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. There's these three temptations that are given. Jesus is the new Adam. The devil comes to him just like he came to Adam. He's going to try to get him to disobey the law. He doesn't, he obeys it. Christ is always triumphant. He's always obedient to the will of God. And it's in Jesus now that we can obey the law. You see, it's the spirit of life in Christ Jesus who has set us free, who has enabled us because what the law, weakened through the flesh, could not do. God did through sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit, that spirit that comes to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
So here is a beautiful commentary from our catechism in paragraph 2583. Finally, taking the desert road that leads to the place where the living and true God reveals himself to his people, Elijah, like Moses before him, hides in a cleft of the rock until the mysterious presence of God has passed by. But only on the mountain of the transfiguration will Moses and Elijah behold the unveiled face of him whom they saw. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> so now we've got the transfiguration. Ta-da! Beautiful painting, right? So now who's standing? Who's, who's in the bottom of the picture? Can you guess? There's three figures down there. Can you remember the story of the transfiguration? James, John. Yep, Peter, James, and John. Okay. But who are the two figures flanking Jesus? Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses. So just like Elijah and Moses went to Mount Sinai seeking the face of God, they didn't really... The fulfillment of their desire is right there. Okay? Because God could only be seen when he became a, a man. That's the only time God was really seen. He really was not seen with the fire. He really was not seen with the wind. He really was not seen with the earthquake. He was seen only when he became incarnate in Jesus Christ. So let's, why don't we read, I think we got some time, let's read Mark uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 1 through 9. Mark 9, verses 1 through 9. Okay. Who wants to read? Uh, Reggie, you want to read? Sure. Okay. 1 through 9? Yeah. Be brave. (laughs) He also said to them, I assure you among those standing here, there are some who will not taste death until they see the reign of God established in power. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John off by themselves with him and led them up a high mountain. He was transfigured before their eyes, and his clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than the work of any bleacher could make them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. The two were in conversation with Jesus. Then Peter spoke to Jesus, Rabbi, how good it is for us to be here. Let us erect three booths on this site, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say, for they were all overcome with awe. A cloud came overshadowing them, and out of the cloud a voice, This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, only Jesus. Great. Good job. So do you see all the different uh, Sinai images in that in that uh, passage? So you have the voice of the Father, just like the voice of God uh, on the day of the church on Mount Sinai. And it's on a mountain, of course. And then Jesus becomes luminous. And in Luke, in the, in the, the account of the transfiguration of Luke, it says explicitly that the countenance of Jesus' face was transfigured. So what's that now? What's that like? What does that remind us of? Moses. Exactly. Horned Moses. The, 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 uh, the glory coming off of Moses' face. 
And it says too, it says, truly I say to you, this is the Lord, right before this event has uh, happens, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. And the implication being that if it's not a total fulfillment, at least it's a kind of a, um, a proleptic installment of the kingdom of God coming to fulfillment. Here's Jesus. And beholding Jesus transfigured is, is seeing the kingdom of God come in power. Um, also, there's uh, the voice of the Father. you got this cloud. All right, and that's what happens on Mount Sinai. There's this kind of luminous... The cloud is not... I mean, I believe that the cloud, you shouldn't really imagine it like um, a big, woofy, uh, fluffy, white uh, cloud in the sky, but that you should imagine almost like a, a, an intense burst of light, like this luminous globe of light. I think that's more how you should kind of imagine it in your mind. And that would be very similar to what's happening on Mount Sinai in the presence of God. Okay, So um, the voice comes from the Father, and oh, and that cloud is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Trinity. You've got the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the Father's voice says, Listen to my beloved Son. Oh, I'm sorry, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now, that's probably an allusion to a prophecy that Moses made. Moses said that when I die... God will raise up from amongst uh, your brethren a prophet like me. And whoever listens to his voice, this actually was the Sunday readings this past Sunday, whoever uh, does not listen to his voice will be cut off. So listen to him. So now Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Listen to him. Now in uh, verses 14 to 15, I'll read those real quickly, they have a conversation about Elijah. um, But then in 14 it says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd about, uh, about them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now, so Jesus comes down from the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, and the people, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. Why? What do you think? Would be a guess. Why would they be? Do they think glowing? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the implication. What happens when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments? His face is glowing, and the people are shocked. They're astonished. But it's opposite happens. What happens when Moses is shocked and scares the people? Where do they run? They run away from him. When Jesus is glowing, they come to him. Okay. Again, the Old Testament law kind of because of its exteriority, it separates us from God, whereas the New Testament law, because of its interiority, it brings us close to God. So, uh, listen to him, Deuteronomy 18.15. Okay, this word, uh, when it says they were greatly astonished, it's a Greek word, ekthambao, and it's unique to Mark. It only shows up in the Gospel of Mark, and it only shows up in three places. It shows up at the Transfiguration, it shows up in Jesus' Passion, when he's in the garden and he's sweating blood and the disciples are greatly, it says they're greatly astonished. So they're afraid. And then it shows up after his resurrection. And when they come into the tomb and they see that it's empty and they're greatly astonished. So there's this, through that word, there's a link between the transfiguration, the passion, and the resurrection. Because what happens in the transfiguration, we're going to see this, I think it's the second or the third Sunday in Lent. Okay, it's going to be 
important gospel passage is this. We're heading towards Good Friday in Lent. Okay, That's pretty scary, right? We're heading towards the Passion. Now, many people are going to be scandalized in Jesus. They, had, they thought that he was the Messiah. They thought he was going to come with a great outward show, that he was going to kick the butt of the Romans and take over and be the King Poobah. Okay? And guess what happens to him? He gets arrested and he gets killed. Kind of anticlimactic, right? Okay, so a lot of people are going to be scandalized over him. So what he does is he brings up these three closest disciples and he reveals his divine glory to them so that they would be strengthened to be able to go through the passion. Okay? So when we when we hear that passage in the third Sunday of Lent or the second Sunday of Lent, you'll see there's all of these hidden... Um, Allusions to and references to the cross and the resurrection in the Mount of Transfiguration. So, um, and basically the point is, is that God's glory is manifested in Christ, but in Christ as suffering and as risen from the grave. Okay? So now we're on slide 18. So the external elements of the old law was ordered towards and shadowed forth the new law. The new law, here's a little maxim from St. Augustine, okay, a little proverb from St. Augustine. The new, uh, the new covenant is hidden in the old covenant, and the old covenant is revealed in the new covenant. Okay, that's a really terse, meaningful, dense proverb that we can all remember. And we can, essentially, this course that I'm teaching you, that's it right there. That, that thing sums it up right there whole economy of salvation is the new law is hidden in the old and the old is revealed in the new. So all those who were sanctified by the old law were Christians and had faith in Christ. And we talked about that. Christians and as a matter of speaking, okay? They didn't use the word, okay? Um, and they had faith in Christ, at least implicitly. When Moses appears on the Mount of Transfiguration... They're talking. Jesus and Moses are talking together like old buddies. It's clear from the way he is speaking with Jesus that he and Jesus are old friends. Their friendship goes back to Mount Sinai. Now this is the next and final phase of this whole uh, study. So, the old law, that hidden dimension to it, that, that kind of minor note, not the major note, but the minor note of the old law, the, 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 the note that sanctifies people, that interior reality that makes people, as it were, Christians, even under the Old Testament dispensations, that's the law of life, and it gives life because of its giver. And that giver is Christ. And so I'm going to show how, in the Old Testament, on Sinai, there was it was Jesus. Jesus himself was giving the Old Testament law. Um, so here's John 5.46. This is why I'm a maximalist, okay? And I, and I believe that, you know, people like Moses and Abraham actually had a, an explicit knowledge of Christ to some extent. Jesus himself says in the Gospel of John, If ye believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of me. Okay, now this is a wonderful, the O Antiphons. Um, I did, uh, I think you'll remember, right? You'll recall, uh, Barb will recall the O Antiphon um, Study or lesson that I did with uh, um, who, who was it again? It was at Case Mansion. Teachers. With the teachers, okay. Um, so what we have in Advent, uh, there are the last, I think it's eight days before Christmas, okay, or before the Eve, Christmas Eve. 
And you have, so it starts on the 17th, December 17th, 18th, 19th, and it goes forth. And so the, uh, the antiphon for the, for Vespers in the office, in the divine office, is, uh, starts with O. And it names Jesus under these, all of these Old Testament titles for him. And that whole series of O antiphons they take all the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ and they sum them up and put them together and it's a really, really dense series of antiphons. Fascinating to study. And I'm going to uh, do it more next year. Uh, get into them more next year. Um, and they go into, they turn into the song. Um, o come Emmanuel. Okay, so, O come, O come Emmanuel. And then if you go through each verse in that song, it talks about how Jesus' wisdom will come from wisdom on high, so forth and so on. Those are the o antiphons put into a hymn. Okay? So here's the O antiphon for December 18th. O Adonai, and leader of the house of Israel, this is our liturgy now, okay, it's not scripture. O Adonai, and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush and gave him the law on Sinai, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. So we're asking for the advent of Jesus to come, but we're calling him Adonai, which is the name of God in the Old Testament. We're saying that he appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and we're saying that he gave the law on Mount Sinai. Now look at the little icon there. Can you guys see that icon? What does that describe that to me to your best of your ability? What does that look like? It's a Moses at the burning bush. Who's in the burning bush? Someone who looks kind of like Jesus. All right. So again, just to show you, this is all part of our tradition here, all right? So this O antiphon, I'm going to try to say to you, it's part of our liturgy, but it's scriptural. That's my that's my take on it. I think it is. All right. So if we read Exodus, uh, um, chapter six, verses eight through one. Actually, let's see here. You know, we've got uh, we still got a uh, fifteen slides or so. Well, let's continue to go, and then we'll we'll, we'll not get through all the slides because I want to stop and talk a little bit. Um, so let's turn to Exodus. Okay, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Sarah, do you want to read? And the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I shall do to Pharaoh. For through a strong hand he will release them, and by a mighty hand he will cast them from his land. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as Almighty God. And I did not reveal to them my name, Adonai. And I formed a a covenant with them in order to give them the land of Canaan the land of their sojourning, in which they were newcomers. I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, with which the Egyptians have oppressed them. And I have remembered my covenant. For this reason, say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord who will lead you away from the work of the house of the Egyptians and rescue you from servitude, and also redeem you with an exalted arm in great judgments. And I will take you to myself as my people, and I will be your God. 
and you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who led you away from the workhouse of the Egyptians, and who brought you into the land over which I lifted up my hand in order to grant it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will grant it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Great. Okay, so um, God appears to Moses, and he speaks, and he says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, we've learned all about this and the different appearances that God made to Abraham, especially culminating in the three angels visiting him, right? And he says, but I I revealed myself to them under the name El Shaddai, which is God Almighty. But under the name, what's called the Tetragrammaton, okay, you've got this mysterious name. It's God's name in the Old Testament. It consists of four letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And when you see it in most Bible translations that translate it directly from the Hebrew, it will be Lord, but it will all be capital letters. Okay, so Lord with all capital letters. That designates this four-letter name that we really can't pronounce. Sometimes people say Yahweh, okay? Which, by the way, the Jews are not really hot on that kind of stuff. Like, you really don't want to say Yahweh around a Jewish person, all right? Because they don't... I'll make a point of it tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, and I and really. How do they, how do they say it? They don't. They it's, don't. An, it's an they unpronounceable don't name. They say Adonai, which means Lord. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So so early early on, out of respect for God's name, they started saying when they would read the Bible out loud in the synagogue, <laughs> they would say they'd come across the Tetragrammaton, and they would say Adonai. Okay. And that that gets carried on, and we and the new Christians do it as well. But there was a fad a few years ago, like maybe 40 years ago, of, of having Yahweh, and we're, we've totally turned away from that. I mean, definitely, we're like all scholars, magisterium is saying, don't do that, guys. It's bad for interreligious, and we don't really know how to pronounce the name anyway, so. Sorry? Really oh. I have some Jewish friends that are used to know Jewish people, yeah. and they say Yahweh like all the time. Like, really? They post it on Facebook. Really? Yeah. That's Yahweh, they spell out W, or I'm sorry, Y-A, with like lowercase a. H-W, or how do they say yeah, it? Yeah, whatever. I've heard of them they're, they're, they're what they call Messianic Jews. Oh, oh, oh that's, that's meant oh, okay. oh, oh, they're Christian Jews. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, yeah. They no, they, 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 yeah, we found them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're well-intentioned, but they're a little goofy. Um, <laughs> no, I'm glad that Jewish people are recognizing Jesus, though. That's great. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's really good. But they're, they're, they're kind of, it's a novelty in a lot of their theology. It's very novel. Uh, but Jews themselves, uh, I guess it's like they still believe they know how to pronounce the name, but your average Jewish person doesn't know how to pronounce the name, and only the height. Like, there's a someone they they know the priestly lineage, and like once a year on Yom Kippur they pronounce the name, and no one really knows it. I mean, it, they really it's like the one thing that really has been kept secret, you know. So, um, but anyways, yeah, they don't they don't use the word. I mean, the Yahweh is not part of the Jewish. Uh, Spirituality. So we have Adonai, okay? And it's interesting because the Jewish word, it's a Hebrew word, Adonai, actually shows up in the Vulgate. And I noticed, Sarah, your translation, are you using the Dewey Rams? Um, I'm using the. Well, I can get the name. Some Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, it's a Dewey Rams. Okay. <laughs> the Catholic public domain version. Yeah, Dewey Rams. It would be the Dewey Rams. So the Dewey Rams is a translation of the Vulgate, the Latin Old Testament, okay? And so St. Jerome, when he translated out of the Hebrew into Latin, he, he just he, he wrote Adonai, okay, right out. So he just he took the Hebrew word and he transliterated it into Latin um, letters. So Adonai. 
And that's, if you remember, our antiphon says, O Adonai. So we're referring to Jesus as Adonai. Okay? Um, We've got like one minute left here. So here's Exodus uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Um, I don't think we have time to read the whole thing, but I'll just read what's right up there on the board. And the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Okay, remember how I was always talking about the anthropomorphic language about God is, is very much a hint uh, of towards in the direction of the Incarnation. So he has come down because he has compassion. He identifies with his people. Now, the, the ultimate fulfillment is, of that is going to be Jesus Christ, who becomes human with a human heart, so that he can actually have human emotions and love everybody with, with a human emotion. And um, he says, I know their sufferings, and I, I highlight that word sufferings because in Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the suffering Messiah uses the same word. And so Jesus, prophetically in Isaiah 53, is called, he's a man of, su- man of sufferings. He's a man of sufferings, that same thing. So Jesus' passion, and that's what the word, when we refer to the word passion, it means sufferings. So here's the Old Testament angel of the Lord who comes down and he's in the bush and he says, He's talking about his passion. He's talking about his ability to commiserate with his people who are laboring under the slavery of Egypt, the devil, sin. Okay, And although, another interesting thing is in our artistic tradition, you have this image of Jesus, basically, a pre-incarnate image of Jesus in the burning bush. But then, so if Jesus comes down in the burning bush, who is the burning bush a symbol of? Mary. Mary. And she's referred to as the burning bush all throughout our tradition. Okay? And she is the bush that burns but is not consumed. And so that's a reference to her virginity that, is, that goes uncorrupted, even though she gives birth to the Messiah. All right? So uh, we can go on here, but I, I mean, there's more to it. Basically, what I'm trying to show you in the, in the end picture is that this angel of the Lord is basically like a prophetic imaging forth of Jesus Christ. But even when they saw the angel of the Lord, they never really saw God. It was basically, and I discussed this when we discussed the three angels with Abraham, it's the way that I, I'm going to get really literal and like almost scientific, quote-unquote. It's like God basically took created elements out of the air. Okay, created elements from the ground or out of the air, and he, through his divine power, composed an image, like a, an image that we could see with our bodily eyes. But it's just an image. An angel, the fire, the wind, all of that stuff. It's just an image. But it points to a reality, and that reality is Jesus Christ. So that God was never really seen in the Old Testament. So when we get to the fourth gospel, it says repeatedly, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son of God has declared Him. Okay, And it says in the, in the opening uh, verse of the first epistle to John, it says, that which was in the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard with our ears, which we have touched, concerning the word of life. And the word became flesh, so forth and so on. Okay, so God was never actually seen. So when when the children of Israel heard this, 
The Ten Commandments booming from Mount Sinai, that was not really God's voice. It was uh, airwaves that were, through divine power, shaped and shot out to the people. Okay, It's not really God's voice. But because of the Incarnation, we really now hear God's voice when Jesus speaks. Because of the Incarnation, we really do see God Himself. It's an incredible uh, mystery. So all the Old Testament points towards the Incarnation. Um, so we're here on slide 22, and there's a whole ton of other stuff I go through. Um, Malachi, here's a great prophecy in Malachi. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to His temple, and the angel of the covenant. We just celebrated this recently with the presentation of Christ. Okay, And Jesus is referred to in that prophecy in Malachi as the angel of the covenant, the angel that made the Old Testament covenant with the children of Israel on Sinai. Um, and then in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus is prophesied. He's called the angel of great counsel. And, uh, and then in Jude, this is a New Testament writing, Jude says, Jesus having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so I'm showing you how the New Testament authors are reading the Old Testament, how we're reading it too, okay? Um, so, if Christ is the word of the Father, then we might expect him functioning in the Old Testament as the message or messenger or angel of God. So, if from all eternity, Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, also referred to as the word of God, word, is that's how I communicate, right? In the Old Testament, this communicating being, this angel, it makes sense that he would, he would function. Um, we should say that the angel of God in the Old Testament... Being a messenger of God and being subject to space and time and change foreshadowed the incarnation of God. But he was just an image of the second person of the Trinity. All right? Just an image. Um, Because this is really the culmination of it all. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have beheld and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So because of the incarnation... You have the divine person, the second person of the Trinity, taking up into himself a fully human nature and becoming a man. And uh, that's a remarkable thing because the union between the humanity and the divinity is so close, it's a unity of person. It's a unity of person. Such that you can say, was, um, was uh, Jesus born of Mary? So then we can say, God was born of Mary. Does, did Jesus have a mother? Yeah, then God has a mother. Mary is the mother of God. Uh, were, did, did Jesus speak to us on the Mount of Beatitudes and give us the Beatitudes, open up his mouth and speak the, the New Covenant law? Yeah, that's the first time we ever heard God speak. It's the first time any human being has ever heard God speak when Jesus taught in public. It's, a, it's an amazing Amazing truth, and it comes. It's based in the incarnation. So we've got about ten uh, or fifteen minutes left. Let's break at about eight thirty-five. We'll call it the night then. And uh, you know, someone's suggestion was let's talk a little bit. I don't know. Do you guys have questions about anything? Anything we've learned so far? I'll kick it off. Okay, Let's <laughs> go, baby. What is what is manna? I mean, does it does it truly exist today, or is it just something that was provided by God or the heavens for them to eat to sustain life? Uh, certainly, you know, for the time of... Uh, go for it, Charlie. Sorry about that. Yeah, Charlie, pass them out. It's, it's Christmas. Uh, so I would say that, you know, manna was the food, was the sustenance that God gave to the children of Israel in their 40 years of wandering in the desert. Okay? And um, it, they said it was like coriander seed. It was fine. 
Now, there could be a scientific explanation. Given it um, There could be a scientific explanation for it. Okay. Uh, in any event, whether there was some kind of miraculous power involved in it, or whether it was a purely providential uh, thing that God arranged and provided for them, it was a you know a food, a real food um, that they could eat and and live on. And uh, but it was a type. It was a type of manna. And first and foremost, it was a type of Jesus Christ because the manna came from heaven. Right. Okay? So just like Jesus came from heaven, the manna came from heaven, and then Jesus is the bread of life. He sustains us. He gives us life. And of course, that's fulfilled in the Eucharist as well, which really is... So then the, so then the manna is also foreshadowing of the Eucharist as well. And we're right now going, until we get to heaven, which is the promised land, we need the Eucharist. That's our, our manna. And that helps us, that sustains us in our journey to heaven. So that's how it's a type. Does that answer? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Bart? My question is this. If the prophets in the Old Testament had experienced Christ, why didn't the, the rabbis of Jesus' time Recognize him. Well, yeah, I know it's because they were full of sin, but they had made a law ahead of time that no one could say they were God when they knew that a Savior was going to come and say that. And I just never really understood why they would make that law when they knew that they were going. If they had that law when the Savior came, they would kill him. Yeah, I think you got the people who were who were behind Jesus's death. Um, I, I really think it was kind of a narrow group of people. I mean, it wasn't a ton of people. It was really a select group. So that wasn't like a, a, a well-known Jewish law that if, the, if you say you're God, you uh, die. Well, oh, no, no, that would have been known. I mean, anybody who would say, like, I mean, if, if you just, it would be considered blasphemous to yeah. claim to be God. You know, that, they, under, they had an understanding that, you know, you're man, you're not God. So that's blasphemous. You know, any Jew would have thought that, pretty much, okay? Um... Now, I guess you got your question has multiple questions in it, okay? That's which is fine. I mean, one question we could ask is this: How were there any Jewish people before Jesus was even born, or, or, or before at least he started his public ministry, who read the Old Testament and thought to themselves, "Hmm, when the Messiah comes?" Now they all expected the Messiah, okay? And I think you don't need the New Testament. You can read the Old Testament. And you can say there's a Messiah figure who's going to come. Now, how to get more specific than that, it's, it's kind of shadowy. Okay? So the question might be, was there, there are certainly many, many Jewish people before Jesus' day who thought the Messiah was going to be purely a human military figure, okay? Who was going to come and be a great king and was not going to be God. Alright? Plenty of Jews thought that. But the question arises, which would be interesting to ask, were there any Jewish people before Jesus was born or before he was manifested publicly who read the Old Testament and on the basis of the Old Testament alone said to themselves, hmm, looks like the Messiah is going to be God. Well, That's they, a question. That's an interesting question. I'm not sure, Charlie. When they brought the baby to the temple. Yeah. And he said, I, what was his name again? Simeon. Simeon. I mean... I, do you think that's when he say? Sure, I think I think Simeon would have Anna. These are prophets, you know. They would have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think Our Lady did, knew before before the angel before the angel even came to her, you know. And we we Barb, you and I had this discussion once. Was in Mary in the artwork where Mary is um, 
waiting for the angel Gabriel to come for the Annunciation, she's got a book in front of her. Okay, and it shows you that she's basically reading the Old Testament, even though they didn't have a book form at that time. But anyways, that's just the art. Shows that Mary knew the Old Testament. And because she was uh, immaculately conceived, she didn't have any of the darkening of the intellect did not take place. So she was actually the most, and uh, in, in a certain sense, is the most intelligent human being who's ever lived. And purest. And, and purest, because of sinless. So intelligent in the sense of she can just, there wasn't any, she wouldn't have ever made any error, okay, in her thinking. And she would have had all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, very, very strong, the gift of wisdom, gift of, gift of understanding, gift of knowledge, very powerfully in her heart. So when she read the Old Testament law, or when she heard it read, she would understand all the prophecies very well. Very, very well. Uh, not not 100%, but but really, like mo- more than any rabbi, more than any learned man would know. She certainly didn't understand it with any error. She, exactly. She wouldn't have understood with any error. Okay, so there might have been shady regions in her mind. She didn't think that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. She never presumed that. Okay. Um, so when it was announced that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, uh, probably a lot, she probably had a lot of understanding already. And she knew that he had to suffer. That was one of the points I made on the, the when I preached on the Immaculate Conception, is that Mary knew. She understood what the, the life vocation of the Messiah entailed. It entailed suffering. So she, when she gave her fiat, when she said yes to the um, Angel, she said yes to the cross as well. Well, in the Old Testament also, um, it says right that he'd be known as the he would be born in Bethlehem. Be born, born to be in Bethlehem, Nazarene. Yeah, right. So Mary would have already known that. Information. Sure, that's already. Yeah, and once she was revealed that she was Jesus. Yeah, she knew. Yeah, she could line it all up basically. Right. You know. But she never presumed in her humility that she would be the mother of the Messiah. And again, on tradition, she had already taken a, a, a vow or at least some kind of um, a resolution not to, mar- not, to, not to have intercourse to be virginal, even within the marriage with Joseph. So she didn't think that she was going to conceive or ever have her children. She never planned on being a mother, basically. Okay, um, And that was her humility. But, uh, yeah, so the question arises, were there any Jews who understood the Messiah as a divine figure? There might have been. I think it would have been a minority group. And the people who were responsible for Christ's crucifixion probably would not have read and understood the Old Testament Messiah like that. But they would have known things about the Messiah. They would have known that he was going to come from Bethlehem. And, in fact, there's a funny passage in John where it says, wait a second, there's this dispute about who Jesus is, and they say, do you really think he's the Messiah? Doesn't it say the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem? But he's from Nazareth. Oh, they, they had to do a little bio on him, a little, little investigation. They would have found out. So that shows you that all this misinformation can be confusing. You know, you got to get to the facts. Wasn't there a, a Jewish scholar that uh, admitted Joseph Arimathea? I mean, I think I Joseph recognized him. I often wondered when was it when he came to that. Probably around the same time as Nicodemus, you know. So Nicodemus in, in John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the miracles that you do unless God has sent him, so forth and so on. So, and then you see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea being kind of paired up. So probably from early on, they just recognized, they were good men, they were men of goodwill, and they their hearts and their minds were open to recognize him. Although, you know, I'd like to have seen, at least from Nicodemus, a little stronger you know, kind of like coming out, you know, the closet, so to speak. <laughs> um, you know, I would like to see that. Joseph Arimathea, at least, was, he was pretty forthright. He says, this guy's just, our law shouldn't be condemning him. 
you know, so Joseph Arimathea was pretty, pretty <coughs> courageous, but I guess what he couldn't go. What is he yeah, going to physically heard. stop them from crucifying yeah. Jesus? I don't know. You know, it would have been difficult. Do you think that at the point where Nicodemus recognized him? Probably early on. Yeah. Same time because they were friends. That's a guess on my part. You know. Yeah. Now, would they have thought that he was God? Maybe not. You know, probably not. Actually, you know, mm-hmm. because even Peter and the disciples who were close to Jesus kind of they grew in their understanding of Christ's divinity. All right. I don't, I don't think they knew that he was God right off the bat. They, they kind of grew in their understanding of that. That came. So. On the net is always the fact that there are, uh, there's a stone of flesh, right? Especially uh, there when they when they got Jesus on Passover. Yeah. And Peter denied him the three times. That was after. That was they after. Saw yeah. Elijah and Moses. And yeah, I know. That's right. Yeah, so, and that's so why Peter stumbled. He wept so hard. Yeah. But I mean, he knew. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He yeah. Knew. Now, getting back to the your discussion of uh, Adam and Moses. Yeah. And Jeremiah, yeah, all the idea of um, the fall, given the covenant and falling, yeah. Essentially, with all, all through history, we're talking about yeah. humans as uh, inherent sinners. And in Paul, one one area where Paul uh, says that the only way God sees us as in salvation is with the mantle of Christ. So. Is so, salvation is Christ. We are saved, but we are still sinners. And you know that mm-hmm. you, you, the whole thing goes right, right to that one point, right there where Paul talks about that. that the only way that God sees us is the only way we can talk to God is through Christ. Because, yeah. because of our nature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think everything you said is correct. Uh, but then if you get more precise, you get you can start to branch off in two different directions, one of which would probably be inaccurate and one which would be the right way to go. So uh, I think, like I said, though, everything as you said it, though, is pretty much right. But we, it is helpful to make a distinction of this. In a certain sense, our righteousness is in Christ. Christ, Christ is our righteousness. He's, you know, all that is true. But there is an internal transformation that takes place in us through the sacraments, and that's grace. And uh, you're in a state of grace or you're not in a state of grace. So... Uh, you can be you're justified and righteous, and not just in name, but in reality, um, through through the grace that comes to us in the sacraments. So, we're sinners. Uh, so, if if you're in a state of grace, in a certain sense, you're not a sinner. Okay, um, you're you could still say you're a sinner in a certain sense that you have what's called concupiscence, which is an inclination to sin. Okay, so even after baptism and the grace of God, we still have the inclination to sin, and we can be called sinners in that respect. On the other hand, though. Paul says there's nothing we can do. Anything we do is meaningless unless we do it through Christ. Unless it's right because it's through Christ. Right. So in ourselves, like in two things, in our human nature, qua nature as nature, we could never do anything that would be um, have have a supernatural value with God. Okay, because we're just we're creatures. All right. So that's true. And then it's all the more true after the fall. Now, okay, but once, you, once you've accepted the fact that all that is true, well, but hold on. There's another point, though. There's another point, though. So, but if we're in a state of grace, and this is key here. Now, this is where Protestants and Catholics start to differ. All right. So, if you're in a state of grace, it's because of the grace of God that comes to us through the cross of Jesus Christ that then provides for us a supernatural reality that's that's internal to us. 
And it's that supernatural reality that becomes a foundation for legitimate merit, for what's called supernatural merit, so that we can say that we can do righteous works. But it's on the basis of the of the grace that comes to us only through Christ. Uh, I haven't said all that. Somebody could be a sinner all their life. Terrible sinner. Mm-hmm, sure. And at the very end... Repent. Repent. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that repentance would result in them being sanctified by God's grace. So you can get somebody who... Again, and this, this is where I, I have the problem. Sure. The acceptance of Christ, unless you accept Christ as your Savior, you can't be saved because it's through Christ that you are saved. And see, that, that's where I see that the whole thing right there, the whole ball of wax, is the acceptance of Christ. Sure. And then you can have a relationship to God. Through Christ. As faith, through faith, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, faith is the foundation right. for justice is what we believe. It's a, faith is the foundation of righteousness and justice. So whatever we do, apart from accepting Christ, mm-hmm. believing in Christ as our Savior, mm-hmm. apart from that, we are not saved, no matter what we do. You can, you can be a better person, yeah. but unless you are a better person through Christ, you're, you're still not saved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the one thing that we can nuance what you're saying here. Let's talk about this is a this would be a pro- oh it's eight thirty five guys. So let's let's call it a night, but we can keep talking. Here. Okay. Um, thank you and uh, thank you. Yes.